Hello, everyone. It's BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Welcome back, listeners. It's Wednesday, the 30th of March. My name is Alex Hochuli, and I am here with a COVID-stricken George Hoare. George, how are you feeling? I'm feeling 100% fine because it's all it's all fake. Um, it's all fake. <laughs> you have to hold that no. line. You can't let uh, the, the the reality of the disease kind of dissuade you from from. No, I mean, I mean to be serious. I mean, I've just got <clears throat> a great mental attitude, so I'm actually feeling all right. And just um, think your you way know, through it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Power of positive thinking. Very good. Very good, Philip. Uh, power of positive thinking. Not something one would normally associate with you. Uh, are you on board with that? Yeah, me. You can hear all of the cheering in the background, Alex. I thought that was mewing. Um, Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Without my, um, with positive thinking or without positive thinking, I'm doing fine. I don't have COVID because I have an incredibly robust immune system, you know, good genes and like, as well as Mm -hmm. a positive mental outlook. And it means that I've, you know, I've not caught the lurgy, unlike you two. Both of you who've caught it. I haven't haven't ever confirmedly had it. So um, I I also think I have some superhuman strength. No, I think it's that you're both kind of enfeebled, basically millennials and you catch all of these diseases because you're weak mm, basically yes younger people are famously the most weak. at risk from <laughs> from COVID. anyway let's not let's not dwell on it's this easy um, no it's easy to not catch COVID if you never leave your home and you're just there and you have no friends as a korean exactly. doctor posted if you, it means you have no friends if you haven't caught COVID. uh anyway uh we're here to talk today about a subject that is i guess I was going to say very dear to our, our hearts, but maybe close to the center of our thinking at Bunga Cast and has been since the very start. Uh, you may have noticed there's a picture of a guy uh, on our logo and everywhere else. Um, and that is a guy who crystallizes, distills perhaps the essence of what we're talking about today, which is techno populism. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi, of course. Um, in some ways, was someone who, and still is, someone who condensed both populism and technocracy in one person. And keen observers uh, who came before us even uh, will identified him as as a real figure of that. Speaking of distilled, we we actually have a uh, an in house bunga cast cocktail which is called the Silvio Berlusconi. There's videos of that floating about. Maybe we should repost that um, if you're interested to drink a cocktail, uh, a Silvio Berlusconi cocktail, as you listen along, which I think. All listeners do, right? I mean, every time I listen to a what podcast, time is I certainly have. Uh, it's three. Not when I record a podcast. I just want to be clear. When I listen to one, it's uh, it's three in the afternoon. Thank you. And you're already thinking about cocktails. Okay. Mm. Um, anyway, so um, yes, guys, we, when we started this podcast, uh, was it nearly five years ago? We're coming up to the anniversary, actually. We're, we're maybe just a week away. Uh, we actually talked about this, right? We were talking about this from the early days that this was the sort of um, thing that we wanted to focus on, at least from the start. I mean, I don't recall us saying this is going to be a podcast about techno populism, but no, no, I think you are. I think you are right though. This is like the themes of technocracy, uh, populism, how these, you know, how these contrast or whether they really are opposed to each other. This is something we've discussed over the course of the, yeah, almost five years. Wow, time does does indeed fly. Well, we wanted, we identified Berlusconi early on as a figure who embodied both streams. So not just um, the kind of sleazy, demagogic, anti-establishment theme, but also the post-political, post-ideological CEO of Italy, the guy with managerial mm-hmm. experience, the corporate leader who was going, who was going to bring his business savvy to um, to the new Italian Republic. So, I mean, that was clear from the get-go. We didn't, obviously, we hadn't, uh, the phrase techno-populism wasn't, um, you know, wasn't uh, the one that we used, but uh, certainly the, the notion was there in terms of inspiring the podcast and using it as a frame with which to understand politics in the last of the, well, at the end, at the end of history and at the end of the end of history. Yeah, indeed. Um, and indeed, it's interesting, actually, every 
probably failed attempt at Berlusconi to make it back to the front line of Italian politics. Uh, you know, most recently, uh, his attempt to become president of Italy uh, has been framed kind of also both as a, techni- a technocrat and a, as a populist. So, you know, this was a, a populist, this popular figure who would come back and unite Italy, but it was also the guy who would uh, come in and um, kind of clear away the, the populist of, of Lega. And so, you know, I think even, even until now, he continues to, to exemplify that, that du- essential duality of techno-populism, yeah. um, which we may learn is more of a synthesis. Uh, George, why don't you tell us uh, what today's interview is about? Yeah, so um, today we're talking with Carlo Invenizzi Acetti, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at City College, City University of New York, and is the co-author with Cambridge's Chris Bickerton of a book entitled Technopopulism. So, yeah, I mean, going through some of the varieties of technopopulism, the causes of this democratic logic, they call this the the, the um, new logic of democratic politics, how this has replaced an older logic, what are some of the consequences? I think it's a really interesting, um, interesting book. I mean, I was, yeah, I, I won't <laughs> kind of tell you, listeners, what the the central arguments are. I'll let Carlo do that. But um, no, very. I mean, a, a book also that I've I've reviewed for Damage as well that I would um, recommend everyone yeah, go well, and pick up a pick up a copy. Have a well, read. Yeah, indeed. And the, uh, the George's review is in the show notes as well. Okay, so listeners, you're about to hear George talking to Carlo. Um, if you want the whole of the interview, as well as our after party, in which we're going to pull out some of the discussions that are uh, raised by it. And I mean, I can already trail what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about the shift from ideological to techno-populist politics, as well as why politics seems so toxic today. Uh, something that has been previously discussed as hyperpolitics. We're going to discuss whether that's an adequate term for what's going on right now, the way that everything seems to be about everything today. Uh, so that's going to be in the after party and it'll be at patreon.com slash We hope to see you there. Catch you on the other side. So thanks very much for being uh, being with us, Carlo. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, your book, Technopopulism, what's the what's the main thesis? What's the main idea? Um, and in particular, why do you think this is the what you call the new logic of democratic politics? So the key idea of the book is that we are used to thinking about politics, and that was largely right for a long time, as a struggle, democratic politics, as a struggle between left-leaning and right-leaning political parties rooted in certain ideologies and interests within society. While many people have said that that paradigm is in crisis, we don't think it's going away entirely. However, it is being in part overlain and in part uh, replaced by a different type of logic of political competition today. Uh, what we observe is that claims to embody the people, claims to popularity, and claims to have the necessary expertise to be able to realize the people's will, or claims to competence, yeah. are becoming increasingly important in contemporary politics. And that's what we call populism and technocracy are becoming the new structuring poles of contemporary democratic politics. Not instead of, but above and beyond left-right ideological competition. However, populism and technocracy have one key difference with respect to the left and right logic of competition. Left and right are, because they are rooted in values and interests, opposed to one another. If you're more on the left, you're less on the right. Whereas populism and technocracy do not have that zero-sum relationship, uh, it is possible to claim to embody the people's will and to claim to have the necessary competence to apply that Mm. in practice. So politicians today have an incentive to the extent that they compete over populist and technocratic appeals to combine the two. Uh, It's very possible to be populist and technocratic. And so I guess the key thesis of the book is that today all politicians have an incentive to appeal to both. And what they actually compete over are different ways of being both populist and technocratic, different types of technopopulism, if you will. So the idea would be that you, you have to be both a technocrat and a populist 
basically to get to get anywhere. I mean, I think this is a really a great a great sort of starting point of the conversation. I guess the first thing that listeners might be thinking is is that is is that right? Isn't there kind of a conflict between these these two ideas? Isn't there sort of an idea that you know populists are anti you know anti technocratic anti expertise? We've all had enough of experts, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, is that that might be some people's starting point here, maybe. Well, yes, of course. So there are many ways of combining appeals to populism and appeals to expertise with one another. Bizarrely, the, the, the obvious one is to pretend that they are, they are opposed and uh, then appeal to one. And this is, I take it, right. the quote from Gove that you mentioned. The people are sick of experts in the context of the Brexit debate. I know that in my in our argument, my argument and Chris Vickerton's, this is still within the technopopulist logic. You are appealing to populism and, and technocracy in the same breath and somehow staking out a position on that terrain, not on the ideological terrain of left and right. However, that is far from being the only, or in my opinion, even the most common way of playing this game, this new logical, this new logic of politics today. Most people today think it's much better to be both with the people and with the experts. And we see that a lot, for example, in the context of the pandemic, where populists often have their own expertise, where they claim to have their own studies. Well, the alternative facts of Donald Trump was a clear example, or, you know, Donald Trump giving examples of like his medical advice over how to get uh, uh, better COVID treatment, ivermectin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Science becomes, or expertise becomes politicized as a ground of political contestation. Uh, so I think, yeah, the incentive that politicians has is to play in, in this new polarity be, uh, that involves populism and technocracy. One way could be to oppose them and say, I'm against the experts, I'm with the people. Most uh, Contemporary politicians, it seems to me, Emmanuel Macron, the Five Star Movement, uh, many politicians in Europe, uh, as Volkan Streich noted on the London Review of Books recently, uh, uh, Angela Merkel, appeal to both registers at the same time. And I yeah. guess that is the key thesis of our book, that in different ways, different politicians are both populists and technocrats today. And that's what they compete over. Different yeah. ways of being populist and technocratic. And that comes through really, really clearly in the book that it's not it's not the same. I mean, you have a left right spectrum. You have to stake out a position on on that. That's the the kind of structuring narrative of politics, you might say. And and today it's not. It's what's your position on technocracy or um, or expertise or populism or the, the the knowledge of the people, these sorts of things. Um, I mean, I guess just just to return to the subtitle of the book. Um, yeah. So the, the new logic of democratic politics. What do you mean by this? You might already have actually covered this, but just so that listeners have a, a, is, a summary. It is what's important to understand is that people are used to thinking that populists or technocrats are a particular category of actors. There are the populists, and then there are the normal politicians. There are the technocrats, and then there are the normal politicians. If our thesis is correct, it's not quite like that. Everybody has an incentive to be populist to some extent and technocratic to some extent and to mix them in some degree. And in that sense, it's this is, uh, so everybody has that incentive to be populist and technocratic in some way. And what they compete over is their different ways of embodying the people right. and being experts. So that is a new logic. It's a new way of fighting. It, it's not, what, we, we, we like this quote from, uh, uh, the American political scientist Schatzneider, uh, democratic politics is always about something. If you want to understand a party system, you want to understand what it is about. What are people fighting over? Yeah. Uh, and both parties, even if they disagree, have an incentive in reproducing the logic they fight over. So he gives the example, even competing brands of cigarette makers have an incentive in promoting the use of cigarettes, even if they disagree which cigarettes you should get. So that's right. what's that's what cigarette marketing is about. Well, contemporary democratic politics is about how populist and technocratic you are. Uh, that's what people compete over. That's the logic of this new type of uh, political competition. And uh, so different people are techno-populist in different ways, but what they share is this common logic. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of the the different types of um, of, of techno populists, and you mentioned some already. But just before we get onto that, what would be your kind of your basic summary of the the logic that this has replaced is replacing the the kind of the I'm trying to extend the cigarettes metaphor, sure. by but I can't. No, no, what, the, logic, uh, the pipes, the like what was this? So the logic it replaces, we call the ideological political logic. And the ideological political logic has a number of characteristics, which really also could help clarify what is distinctive about the techno-populist political logic. In the ideological logic, parties stand for particular ideologies or sets of values, visions of the future that are rooted in particular interests within society. So for instance, communist parties stand for the interests of a class, the working class, and have an ideology which is based on those interests. It's rooted in the, it's an ideology which is rooted in values and interests. And it's a part, that's why it's a party. It represents the interests of a part, the working class in this case, a particular group. Christian democratic parties, just the same. They represent the interests and values of a part of a section of society, the Christians. And that's why they are parties. Technopopulism, also important to note, parties that compete on the left-right dimension ideologically are horizontal with each other. Left-right is a horizontal dimension. Uh, left supposes a right. And they are equally legitimate. Your interests as are legitimate as mine, a priori, depends who gets more votes, gets to govern. Technopopulism is very different in several ways. Both populists and technocrats do not claim to represent, to stand for any values or interests of a part of society. They both claim to represent the interests of society as a whole, the people or the truth, uh, what the people should want. Uh, And as such, they replace the horizontal logic of left-right political competition with a vertical logic of the struggle of the whole against the parts. The whole is what the populists and technocrats stand for, and the others, their opponents, are always the part. But whereas the part is legitimate when it is opposed to another part, and that's the logic of left-right, yeah. it is illegitimate when it is opposed to the whole, because if you are a part standing against the whole, you become what they call special interests or, uh, you know, self-interested politicians or self in- and and therefore this makes conflict itself illegitimate, right? Uh, so it's a very different logic from the other one. Whereas the other one is horizontal and involves a re- and based on values of an interest of groups within society. This one is vertical because it it opposes presumptively the interests and values of society as a whole against those of some parts within it. So it's these yeah. are very different logics. Yeah, I mean we can uh, come on to the the pandemic, for example, and see how um, you know this this might have been illustrated by this idea of having the the truth, the the whole of society. This is this is what uh, should happen, and anybody who disagrees with it representing a partiality and and being you know delegitimate uh, or delegitimized for for that reason. But yeah, I mean that thanks that was a, I think really useful um, summary of that kind of ideological political logic of democratic politics um but yeah i wanted to ask you a little about some of the different types of techno populists and and you know just for listeners is this you know the different types is this different kind of positions on that techno populist spectrum is that is that the way to understand it in the way that you might have center left far left center right far right or is it a little bit different no it's different because here the method shifts we once we have set up the the terms of the debate, we proceed inductively by looking actually at what positions have been staked out in this new field. And so this is not a complete picture. I will give some examples out of which we extrapolate some what we call varieties of techno-populism. One example which has been influential for us is uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy. The Five Star Movement in Italy began as a clearly populist movement against the casta, against the elite. Uh, uh, I think listeners of your podcast are familiar with many of the things that the Five Star yeah. Movement has done in Italy, so I don't need Hope to so. draw that. Yeah. One of the things that I think is important to emphasize about their discourse and, and conception of politics, however, is that, and has less been emphasized, is that there is a deeply technocratic strain in the tech, in the discourse of the Five Star Movement as well. And this comes out in several ways. One is, for instance, the role they assign to the internet and crowdsourcing as a way of solving political problems. 
Their basic idea is that the internet by mobilizing collective intelligence can solve problems more effectively than the experts themselves. So the people collectively mobilized through the internet are more expert than the experts themselves. Yeah. So here the citizen is mobilized not as a bearer of rights or opinions, but as a bearer of a specific kind of knowledge as a technocrat, we are all experts. Is in a way the techno, the techno pop, the synthesis of techno populism. Together, we are more experts than the experts. Uh, that uh, that, uh, that so t- in, in the case of te- of the five star movement, we call this a, a one variety of techno populism. The synthesis of populism and technocracy happens in this figure of the citizen expert, yeah. in this in, in mobilized through the internet or in the idea of collective intelligence is collective intelligence as a techno-populist trope. The idea that the people together are more expert yeah. than- Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I think it's um, a, a, a brilliant description. I mean, that idea of the citizen, the citizen expert, how you can, um, yeah, you can, you can through, go by going through the people, you can end up uh, more expert than the experts. A, a different variety of techno-populism we talk about is Macron, Emmanuel Macron, La Republica March in France. This is a very different type of uh, techno-populism for us because here the synthesis between the people's will and expertise does not happen in the figure of the citizen expert, but in the figure of what we call the redemptive leader or the figure of Macron himself. He somehow positioned himself as the embodiment of the French Republic. It's in this respect, it's worthy of noting that the beginning, that the movement en marche, La République en marche had the same initials as Emmanuel Macron. Uh, yeah, no. but also <laughs> as a problem solver, yeah. the problem solver. He had worked at Rothschild. He was able to find solutions. He would cut through the bureaucracy. So here, the synthesis between the people's expertise and the people and the expertise happens in the figure of the redemptive leader as a problem solver. The people's problem solver is what 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 we call Macron. And so in a way here, we already have an important distinction. We call in a way the Five Star Movement as a bottom-up form of techno-populism and La Republican March as a form of top-down. If if we have time, I'll tell you about a third example, which may be interesting to the British readers uh, or listeners. We also consider uh, Tony Blair's New Labour, an early maybe one of the first examples of techno-populism, which is another variety, because here it happens not through the creation of a new movement, but through the transformation of an existing party. New labor is a transformation of old labor. And here it is through a transformation in the nature and the organizational structure of the party itself. That's why we call it a middle out form of techno-populism. And the key, the key figure here is the pollster. Uh, uh, Tony Blair, which had, as we know, many populist features, the people's, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, Peter Mayer has already discussed this at such length, I don't yeah. even need to talk about it, but also the guy who said what matters is what works. He was both populist and technocratic, but the synthesis here happens to the figure of the pollster. The pollster is another deeply technocratic figure, because techno-populist figure, because it is the scientific production by experts of popular opinion. Yeah. So, the, how we mobilize science to actually know what the people really think. And as one of the first governments through polling, uh, constantly following public opinion as mobilized by these uh, you know, experts at public opinion, we have a party that is transformed in a, in a kind of polling machine, like the New Labour Party, and a machine for understanding what the people really want in scientific methods. And here we have a third synthesis of populism and technocracy. No, very sophisticated market research uh, kind of uh, and brand sales um, machine in in terms of New Labour. But no, I think that's really interesting having those three characters, the citizen expert, the redemptive leader, and the pollster as the three kind of um, um, kind of individuals that listeners can can kind of associate with these three and it's not exhaustive there are many others no. people can continue to mix populism and technology and come up with new uh i dare say with gramscian memory monsters uh, uh, yeah. in, uh, in uh, constantly they keep doing it but just just um i wanted to ask you about the the people's problem solver macron like what would be an earlier sort of redemptive leader? Because I think there are many ways that a leader could be redemptive and by solving problems, that's certainly 
um, one sort, but that's maybe not the most uh, politically obvious way that a leader could be could be oh, redemptive. Absolutely. I mean, the obvious example for Macron, the reference in France, is is the goal, right? Uh, and the goal also had this embodiment idea of France. In certain he often in his speeches treated interchangeably himself and France. Uh, so there is a long history in France of this embodiment model of the Republic, which has deeply populist uh, features and has been studied by many. Uh, I don't need to repeat uh, here from Federico Finkelstein onwards, but, but, but and not only, but by many. Uh, I have been told, and it's interesting that that uh, would would the uh, goal be an example of prehistory of technopopulism? Mm. And would it challenge our position? There are also many other features and, uh, that, that they share in common. For instance, I mean, the role of expertise in French politics, the ENA, these great uh, experts that run democracy, and the anti-partisanship. Anti-partisanship, the goal's message was always, never had, was a member of a political party, Rassemblement Populaire, always anti-party. Anti-partisanship was an important element of the goal's political identity. I think so he may have belonged to a prehistory of technopopulism in that regard as a redemptive leader, and he belongs to the prehistory of Macron. The social conditions were very different, though. At the time, you still had organized, mobilized political parties in opposition, uh, and even despite his anti-partisanship, ultimately, Gaullism was forced to take the form of a political party, the RPR. Uh, and as such, it was rooted in the interests and values of a particular section of the French society. And the, so the logic, even though maybe Mac de Gaulle wanted to be a technopopulist, he wasn't like Macron in the same way because the logic of politics at the time was still the logic of organized groups mm. fighting against each other. You still had parties uh, in, in, yeah. in the 50s and 60s in France in a way that you just don't today. Organized working class movements, organized churches. Mm. Uh, these structured French politics in a way that today is not the case anymore. So I think this actually brings us really nicely on to, to the next question, which I wanted to ask, which is essentially how this developed historically. I mean, how, so you say that the, the conditions for, for de Gaulle were very different to those for Macron. And so the, the former couldn't really be a, maybe the techno populist that he wanted in his heart, heart of hearts to be. Um, but yeah, so how does the conditions that uh, enable or necessitate, I mean, I'll leave that one to you, um, but lead to techno populism, how do they, um, develop historically? Yes, thank you. The thesis that we develop in our book on the origins of technopopulism is based on the idea that its roots can be traced back to a long-term process of separation between politics and society. Obviously, there are many factors involved, but this is our overarching narrative. Uh, politics and society have moved apart from each other. There is a process of mismatch, increasing mismatch between them. To explain better what I mean, it's worth considering that, as an example, uh, during the middle part of the 20th century, politics, democratic politics, if we take, for instance, Lipset and Rockan's analysis, mm -hmm. was very much the struggle between organized social groups. This is what they called cleavage structures. Essentially, there was a class cleavage, a religious cleavage, and a regional cleavage, which defined particular groups. Parties were the expressions of these cleavages, these different social groups, and politics reflected this underlying sociological set of distinctions. So politics and society were tied to, to one another and they use the language of reflection. Politics yeah. reflects underlying social divisions yeah. in the middle part of the 20th century. What happens over the second part of the 20th century, according to Chris Bickerton and I, is that politics and society progressively move apart. Why? Because the underlying social divisions, that cleavage structure, changes, begins to change, and in many ways to fritter, to be, to be undermined in complicated ways. Uh, the class divisions that existed do not go away, but are certainly complicated. There's not today the proletariat and the bourgeoisie in the same way 
as there was in the 1950s. It becomes more complicated. The same way a process of secularization occurs, which undermines the religious distinction. And then there's globalization. There's lots of processes which can be maybe summarized in a process of what many sociologists have called individualization as an overarching sociological transformation of the second half of the 20th century. We are less members of organized groups and more individuals, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So kind of while society is changing in this mm. way, we argue politics is not. Politics is not. Politics remain, as Lipset and Rock and say, frozen in the old left-right divisions that actually depended upon it. And for this reason, becomes increasingly hollow. Uh, becomes already, I think, the 60s and the 70s are a sign of a transformed society, but, but politics doesn't change. It required the big shock of the end of the Cold War at the 90s to break the empty carapace of left-right politics and allow this new individualized, destructured kind of politics to break through. Uh, so that's why you start getting technopopulism only after the 90s, because you first have to break the empty carapace of the frozen left-right logic that was in place until the 90s. I will end with saying just one more thing about this, if you will, origin story. Yeah, yeah. Why is it that when society and politics are increasingly alienated from one another, when you have a completely individualized, privatized society on one hand and an increasingly self-referential politics on the other and no mechanism of connection between them, why is it that you get technopopulism? Because that's when politicians begin to have an interest to claim to represent society as a whole. When you don't have groups, but you only have a dis disorganized mass of individuals, it's not, it's, you, you, there's no interest in appealing only to a part of the people. You wanna appeal as a politician to the whole, to the people as a whole, to the truth, to competence. There's no point in appealing only to a part. So yeah. ideological destructuration is a symptom of social destructuration. Uh, and 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 the two go hand in hand, obviously. So, uh, so, so I guess to put it another way, would you say this is essentially a, a kind of a material kind of explanation to the extent that declining <clears throat> kind of church membership rates, trade union membership rates, like a, a decreasing, you know, arguably class consciousness after the uh, at, at the, in the the end of history, if you want to put it that way, um, period. That basically you put all this together. And there is a, you know, there is a changing set of um, ways that, you know, that people interact, which, which lead to a, um, a new set of incentives for politicians, which they more or less quickly respond to. Absolutely. Yes. I think as long as we understand materialist explanation correctly and we don't understand it reductively, as you said, class consciousness. And so consciousness is very important in this. Whether or not class changes, we're sure that there's way less class consciousness today. And that is, so ideas matter absolutely to this process. And there is a dialectic that goes both ways between material reality and ideas, as I'm sure you agree. And, and that is, so yeah, in that sense, it is an explanation that has to do with how ideas and uh, material reality evolved together. Yeah. Let me add just one point about that, okay. where about materialism, Wh where our thesis is likely to be less palatable to uh, people who think of themselves as materialists is that what we say is that the result of this process is that today, political sociology doesn't explain a lot. Or more specifically, people are often trying to understand, okay, so what is the social base of the Five Star Movement? Who actually votes for them? And many, many empirical studies have found that it's very difficult to identify a social base. Uh, they are more or less representative of the broader population on all grounds, in terms of class, in terms of gender, in terms of... That's because for us, a form of technopopulism like that is not the expression of a group within society, but of the separation or disconnect between society and politics more broadly. So we don't want to ditch political sociology entirely. We think that political sociology today needs to be a, reflect the fact that society and politics are disconnected from one another and mm. take account of the destructuration of society. Uh, so technopopulism is not an expression of a particular social class or group yeah. within society. It is an expression of the disconnect between yeah. politics and society. In, interesting. I mean, I, I think any political sociologist listeners will be 
will be maybe triggered uh, by that. But no, anything which is emphasizing political theory or looking at things politically uh, rather than sociologically, there's maybe something to be to be said for that. But anyway, I I am there's a, a, a lot more questions that I would very much like to to ask you, but I'm I'm haven't been. Uh, strict enough with the the time so far so that's definitely on me and one of these questions is bringing it right up from the the history to the present day or almost the present day the the pandemic i mean this uh, as a test of the of the thesis how do you think it how do you think it um it handled the the pandemic and particularly the responses that many uh, democratic countries found themselves giving to uh to covid uh, so we wrote the book before the pandemic, yeah. and there's only a little bit of discussion in it in the conclusion, which is what we wrote just as the pandemic was beginning. So we allude to the pandemic a little bit in the book, but in retrospect, now seeing how the thesis has fared, uh, I hope we're seeing the end of the pandemic too, at least uh, to the extent that it's becoming yeah, ended. Definitely. Let's see about that, but whatever. I I dare say uh, that it seems to me the thesis has fared out pretty well in the sense that if there would be any evidence that politics is increasingly becoming a struggle between those who claim to have the expertise and those who claim to represent the people, as I mentioned before, these debates, constant, everything seemed to me framed in those terms about the pandemic. The whole debate about whether Trump was competent enough to uh, uh, steer us through the pandemic was framed in those terms. He's a populist, he doesn't have the expertise. And what the people really want is to be free. They don't, they don't care about the expertise. So this framework, the, 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 I, I saw very little in the way of like, what would be a left-wing response versus a right-wing response to the pandemic? How do different political parties and different social groups tend to gain or lose from the pandemic seem to me nowhere discussed yeah. whereas always it was a, str- a question of what the people as a whole want and what what expertise requires so if we needed any evidence that politics was becoming more techno-populist it seems to me the pandemic was treated in very techno-populist ways not that it had to yeah but it was. no i think um i think it was quite striking so it's a kind of What's the opposite of a trick question? Like a, a softball question. I mean, yeah, I think um, I think it really was quite striking how, like you said, what a left wing or what a right wing response to to the pandemic was. There was some, I think it was very revealing and quite quite um, yeah, very illustrative that these the relationship of these groups to or these sorry these ideas of left and right to to previous parts of the social whole um, definitely <laughs> weren't as strong as they as they had been i mean do you have any favorite examples of a kind of here's a here's a techno populist um claim or or like way of framing things that, yeah, that you I saw lo- during the I, pandemic i always remember when trump is trying to like promote ivermectin or even at some point like drinking bleach and there's the mm. other the doctor like fauci there who's like <laughs> dying inside this this is an example of what happens to politics when it's not about values but about expertise expertise becomes politicized and then you <laughs> and then you have different people disagreeing about whether ivermectin cures covid or not yeah. that's that becomes politics uh, which is bad for politics and for science uh, yeah very opinion. very true yeah i mean um the the replacement of of ideas of who's who wins and who loses uh with what does this particular chart say well i've got another chart and this line yeah, is going exactly. up down whatever yeah no so okay. no i think maybe to to kind of d- develop this a little bit what do you think are some of the the implications like how could this how could this you know either develop or or what does this mean for the you know for the way that we experience politics for like what what the possibilities um are i mean yeah what are the implications of if we are in a techno-populist world now yeah i i should say i hope it's clear from now that whereas this is a political science book we want to try to describe what's going on we also have opinions and we don't think it's any good techno-populism is a problem for the quality of our democratic regimes we talk about many of the consequences that substantiate that claim here i will focus only on two uh, illustrative ones okay. uh, first we think that uh, 
as technopopulism becomes the structuring logic of contemporary democratic politics, politics is likely to become more and more toxic. Uh, this is something that has been commented upon by many people uh, that we don't have adversaries anymore. We have enemies that yeah. uh, there's even empirical evidence of affective polarization that we're not willing to accept other people's opinions. And I, we see this as a consequence of that fact that politics is being it's not anymore left to right, which are on a horizontal plane. I'm on the left. You're on the right. We're the same. You have, we have different we have different interests and different values, perhaps. Now, if we stand for the interest of the whole, the other is always an illegitimate part and therefore becomes an enemy of the people. Of course, if you are the people who is against you is always the enemy of the people and as such illegitimate. So it's not a coincidence that politics is becoming more toxic because when it's fought not as a struggle between different parts, but as a struggle between everybody pretending to be the whole against the parts, the other, the, the adversary becomes an enemy. And so, so politics becomes more toxic. People yeah. have less time for each other and more willingness to attack each other. So when you say toxic or, or I mean, I guess the, the question is what, what can you do to an enemy that you can't do to an adversary? Like what toxic, how, I guess is the toxic how in the sense that you question their motives in the sense that uh, you, what's happening to American politics and increasingly also British politics, that, it, that there is no, space for democratic dialectics between majority and minority it's just all out war so yeah. what do you do to an enemy you you question their motives you you you, you pretend that they are illegitimate you exclude them you do not accept the results if you lose mm. uh, like you don't also, you don't need to debate i guess there, i guess there's nothing that can debate. be yeah you can only fight yeah. so and 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 at the limit point you don't accept the results if you lose which is what happened in the united states uh, after january 6th a second paradoxical consequence, which seems, but only seems to run against the first one, is what we call desubstantialization. Because paradoxically, or only seemingly paradoxically, precisely as politics is becoming more toxic, more violent, more, more virulent, I would say, we're, we're, we're replacing adversaries with enemies. Actually, there's not a lot that we fight about concretely because populism and technocracy are not rooted in this concrete interests and values of specific groups within society, but are these attempts to appeal to the interests of the whole, they have an interest in diluting their concrete policy preferences to try to appeal to as wide of a, a, a number of people as possible. Uh, so actually we fight a lot, but not about very much. Mm. Uh, and, not, and not about anything that could be Overly, uh, overly attractive to one part at the expense exactly. of other parts. You don't want to alienate anybody. So try to promote only things that everybody can agree with. That's going to be a very thin political <laughs> agenda. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's going to agree to it, sure. But that's why if you look even at the concrete policy preferences of, I don't know, Macron and Le Pen, it's difficult to see very strong elements of disagreement, even on immigration, uh, even... Like what Macron got Le Pen on in that famous debate in, uh, five years ago was on her competence, not on the fact that her political program appalled anybody. Uh, he like ended up doing many of the things she wanted in terms of immigration, which I guess is her signal mm. uh, uh, stance. She had already uh, uh, renounced Frexit as a, as a, as a position, renegotiating, renegotiating European treaties is something they agree. Like action. So while we fight a lot and hate each other, there's not a lot we fight about. So increasing toxicity and desubstantialization, uh, what we call the unbearable lightness of contemporary politics, mm, are two consequences. Nice phrase. Uh, are two consequences of technopopulism for us. Okay. So unbearably like contemporary politics yeah increasingly toxic and desubstantialized I, I yeah i think that's a very very nice way to frame it um i guess well i don't know if it is incumbent on you to even answer this question but i would like to put it to you in terms of what we should do to respond to this like how practically do we get out of a, a techno populist situation particularly given that you you said that uh, you clarified for listeners who might not have have, uh, have gathered this that do you think that this is a bad thing? So if it's a bad thing, how do we uh, how do we get beyond the unbearable lightness of contemporary politics? Is it make it make it heavier? Uh, I don't know even what the what yes. the answer would be in that context. 
So, so yes, uh, two things about that. In our last chapter, which is about the remedies to techno-populism, we address this issue. I would like to start with a disclaimer. We have been criticized, for instance, by Streik uh, on the London Review Books for this chapter in particular. And obviously, he even poses the, one in my opinion, is the right question, which is, once you identify a problem, is it incumbent upon you to find a solution? Mm. Uh, not all problems have solutions, he says. So it's with much less confidence that I am going to submit the, the, the following ideas for yeah. consideration because I'm more confident about our analysis. And then the last chapter was it's entitled tentatively normative reflections on technopopulism to signal that I mean, here's our idea about how we yeah. can resolve it. But surely it's not up to two academics to solve contemporary politics. If, if I well. had a solution, I should be. I should probably be somewhere else than, yeah. than, than, than at a university. But, but our ideas are two, a negative and a positive one. Okay. A negative one is there is a very common discourse whereby populism and technocracy can be treated as remedies for each other. Like somehow, even if you agree that they're a problem, that populism is a problem, we need to inject a bit more expertise as a bulwark against populism. Or if the system has become too technocratic, uh, we need to more populist mobilization to like compensate for that. And this idea results in the, in the, in the idea that what we need is some kind of balance between populism and technocracy. Right. Our argument, if, if you followed it, is actually that this doesn't work. Because populism and technocracy are not in a zero-sum game, but actually mutually reinforcing, or two sides of even the same coin, this idea of a politics of the whole against the parts, yeah. more populism will not give you less technocracy and vice versa. So populism and technocracy are not remedies to each other. They are reciprocally reinforcing. So we need to fight against populism and technocracy together, not employ one against the other. That's the negative idea. I think I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm sold on, on that one. Um, yes. But, but negative ne one, negative solutions are, are easier. So yeah, I should I should stop interrupting critique. and let it's you. It's critique. It's normative critique, the, and obviously we're all better yeah. at normative critique than at proposal. And so yeah. even more tentatively, here's our positive solution. Uh, our positive solution is, well, if it's true that technopopulism stems from a, this growing separation between society and politics, which I failed to mention this before, we ultimately locate in a crisis of what we call the intermediary bodies between society and politics. The, the bodies, the forms of organization that previously organized people into groups and allowed them to act collectively on the Respublica, on the common uh, things. Uh, so, what are these intermediary bodies? Obviously political parties, but also trade unions, but also churches, and of course the ultimate mediator, the media. So the public sphere. These are all the instances of mediation between society and politics that enabled particular interests to be reflected at the level of the whole, which for yeah. us is essential to democracy. Yeah, yeah. If it is true that, that the roots of technopopulism lie in a crisis of intermediary bodies, then what we need to do is think about ways of revitalizing forms of political intermediation. Uh, and I know that this is uh, sort of controversial because there is a trend of disintermediation. All the techno-populists like Grillo, like Renzi say, what we need is less mediation, less organization. Yep. Let the people speak directly. What we want is direct democracy. Well, our argument running against that is no, what you need is more mediation, more forms of collective organization that allow people to be grouped in groups, social groups that can act over the whole. And so what does it mean? More political parties, more forms of organization, more trade unions, mm. more political deliberation as structured political deliberation, not Twitter, but newspapers. That's a mediator. So, I mean, I, I think the the logic of this of this response you know i definitely i definitely buy it but i guess my, my it's not even really a critical point but is i mean this is a quite a difficult thing to do right this would be a massive work of like sociological of re rebuilding society not to put it in a too grandiose way like is that is that what it what would be required i mean is is it really something of that kind of enormous social scale sure i mean i don't 
think it's that much of a social scale because I think we should also not forget that there is, and it's pretty clear from many things, a demand for political participation. There is, and we see it all the time, even like demonstrations have been increasing uh, all the time, like uh, from the you know, anti-war movements of the early 2000s to the Gilets Jeunes to, to there the, the constantly are these incipient social movements occupy uh, that develop. I think there is a demand, but it is unstructured, but it is unstructured. It is precisely this disorganized uh, expressions of popular discontent that could be, that, that take the form of manifestations of rage, it seems to me. Mm. What is lacking is the offer, actually. So it's not that I don't think we need to change society. I think we need to offer different channels of political participation. And in that regard, I think another argument Chris Bickerton and I make is that why is it that the offer is inadequate to the demand? It seems to me that the existing forms of political participation, the traditional ones, political parties, trade unions, media, churches, if you will, do not match the demand because they are still based on a kind of model of organization, which is very anachronistic, which is basically the Fordist top-down oligarchic model of organization. Like, I think Mitchells was right that the Social Democratic Party was an essentially oligarchic top-down organization. And that traditional political parties, I have participated in some, are very hierarchical and very anti-democratic in their organizational structure. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I don't participate that much because it's boring and I am an individual. I'm not sort of somebody like in the 1950s who was willing to go to the party section and be told what to think, be told what to do. And that was his political participation. I, like many people in this generation, are are an individual. I have my opinions. I read my newspaper. So I'm willing to politically participate, but in different forms. It has to take a different form, which is not authoritarian and top down. So our idea is if the forms of political participation in parties, in trade unions, I dare say even in churches, were more fitted to the kind of cognitively mobilized, individualized public that exists today sociologically, they could function as mediating bodies. So essentially how to revitalize intermediary bodies, I would say, quickly speaking, democratize them. Mm. Don't adopt top-down hierarchical organizational models, but to the extent that you adopt more open, democratic, bottom-up models of organization, these intermediary bodies can be revitalized, it seems to me. Hi, listener, Alex here. I'm very sorry, but that's the end of the free section of this interview. The rest of the interview is over on patreon.com slash followed as promised by our after party. We hope to see you there.